From the Kennan Institute in Washington, D.C., welcome to Kennan X, a podcast on our never-ending quest to understand Russia, Ukraine, and the surrounding region. I'm your host, Jill Doherty. Today, Russia and the coronavirus. Every hour, more and more Russians are being diagnosed with or dying from coronavirus. The numbers change daily, but we're not going to concentrate on that, horrific as it is. Instead, we're going to look at the longer-term impact of this pandemic on Russia and on President Vladimir Putin. In January, with Russia reporting no coronavirus infections yet, the Russian government moved quickly. The prime minister announcing it was shutting down the border with China and President Vladimir Putin assuring his fellow Russians he had the situation generally under control. But on March 24th, in a meeting with Putin, the mayor of Moscow, Sergei Serbyanin, admitted official data on infections were not clear. The number could be much higher. That same day, trailed by news cameras, Mr. Putin, dressed in a bright yellow hazmat suit and respirator, visited a hospital outside of Moscow treating coronavirus patients. But confirmed cases continued to rise. Less than a month later, on Russian Orthodox Easter, seated in front of the fireplace at his residence with a cup of tea and an Easter cake on the table next to him, Mr. Putin said once again, the situation is under full control. So, what is the real situation in Russia? And what does it mean for Vladimir Putin? I asked two experts, Judy Twig, professor of political science at Virginia Commonwealth University. Her area of expertise is international health, specifically in the former Soviet space. And Oksana Antonienko, the London director of Control Risks, a political and security risk consultancy. Judy Twig, there is a lot to talk about this subject because we have on so many different levels for Russia, health, oil prices, political situation, China, where do you begin? But I read your article, What Lies Behind Russia's Coronavirus Containment Effort in Russia File. It was very, very interesting. So let's start with the health part of it. Mm-hmm. There are statistics coming out. They change every day. But the numbers actually are pretty low in Russia, officially, compared to some other countries. Do you believe those official statistics? I don't. And let's start with the first point, which is that Russia's numbers are still relatively low, but they seem for a while to have plateaued in the neighborhood of 6,000 new cases reported every day. Today, we were up to 7,000 new cases reported. So it's of concern that they've been at that level for a couple of weeks now, and it doesn't seem to be coming down on the other side of the curve. 
So Russia's situation is pretty serious, even in terms of the number of reported cases. And then second part of your question, I think, is extremely important. Do we believe the numbers that are coming out of Russia? And while I don't in any way think that Russia is deliberately masking the extent of its coronavirus burden. In other words, I don't think that Putin is sitting there in the Kremlin with some secret set of numbers, two sets of books, one the real story about coronavirus in Russia and one the numbers that they're releasing to the rest of the world. I don't think that's happening. But I do think that there are lots of patterns in the way Russia is testing and the way it's reporting cases that would lead us to believe that like many other places in the world, maybe even most other places in the world, the official numbers are not giving us a true reflection of the burden. Anybody who's been to Russia and has been to a hospital knows the condition of many hospitals, Mm -hmm. not in Moscow because they're quite good often, but I've been in Moscow hospitals that had substandard conditions. And when you get out into the countryside, as you point out in your article, 40 Mm percent of hospitals lack heating. That's a general statistic, but we know that there are real problems. Can the Russian healthcare system deal with something like this? That's such a terrific question. And when you dig down into the details of what a lot of those regional and rural hospitals are lacking, you pointed out that they lack heating. Many of them lack hot water or running water at all. I mean, how can you do something basic for infection control like wash your hands consistently if you don't even have running water? So the implications for this particular pandemic and the way you would control it are pretty severe. Even in Moscow and St. Petersburg, we're starting to hear some very difficult stories about hospitals reaching capacity. We know that they're continuing on a daily basis to convert non-COVID-19 facilities into COVID-19 treatment facilities. They're running out of bed space, even in Moscow and St. Petersburg. What happens as they continue to rack up six or 7,000 new cases a day? You point out in your article that in one study, only 13% mm-hmm. actually have trust in their healthcare system. Why is that? It's for a couple of reasons. One is a perception that things were so much better during the Soviet period and that there's been a degradation of the healthcare system since then. Mm. And I don't think that the reality necessarily bears out what we see in the public opinion polls there. We should give the Soviet Union, the Soviet healthcare system, credit for what it did achieve, which was universal access to care. Even in the most far-flung, middle-of-nowhere regions of Siberia and the North, they did manage to get everybody access to those basic Feldsher points. There was at least someone trained as something like a midwife to the most sparsely populated areas in the country. So that was great, but that was universal access to a quality and level of care that was just miserably low in most parts of the country. In the last 20 or 25 years, the healthcare system collapsed with the rest of the country back in the 90s. And since then, there have been just very differential, widely varying patterns of evolution since then. So if you're someone who is covered by the national compulsory medical insurance system in Moscow or St. Petersburg or Nizhny or Novosibirsk, where they've built these new facilities for cardiac care and for maternal and child health over the last decade, your level of trust might have recovered and it might be pretty high. But if you have been a victim of 
lack of investment and continued degradation of facilities and quality of care and these negative investment patterns in the last 10 or 15 years, then your level of trust is pretty low. One of the things that you were mentioning is PPE, mm-hmm. protective gear, etc. Mm-hmm. What do they have? What don't they have? What do they need? What they appear to need most desperately is the very basic masks, good masks, not just basic cloth coverings, but masks that are rated for protection from the virus. So actual respirators, they need gowns, they need gloves, they need face shields. Mm. Just those fundamental pieces of equipment are in horrifically short supply. Russia historically has not made a lot of that stuff. They could import it more cheaply from China. And so they were just buying all that stuff as a routine supply measure for their healthcare system before the pandemic started. It didn't make economic sense for them to mass produce those things on their own. And then in January and February of this year, when the pandemic broke out in China, a lot of the places in Russia that had a lot of that PPE sold their stocks to China because China needed it so desperately. So existing stores of PPE in Russia were depleted, and now they're panicking because they need it. One aspect of this, of course, is the sanctions, both by Europe and the United States after the invasion of Ukraine, etc. The Russians were not able to import some medicines. They had to start making medicines themselves. How is that situation with the sanctions affecting this? That's such a terrific question. And I don't think we know the full story on that yet. We do know that in terms of industries related to the pandemic, so pharmaceuticals and medical equipment industries, we know that even before Ukraine and Crimea, even before the sanctions environment was put in place, Russia was pursuing a pretty aggressive import substitution policy. And that's not just in pharmaceuticals and medical equipment. That was across a lot of different industries, all a part of Putin's effort to reestablish Russia as an economic power, as a great power politically on the planet. He wanted to create incentives for Russia's industry to redevelop, to begin to thrive. And so Part of those import substitution policies that have been around now for 10 or 15 years was incentive structures that would encourage Russian producers to make medicines, precursor chemicals to a lot of important medicines, a lot of medical equipment. And so tariffs went up. There were incentives for buyers to buy those things homegrown, Russian-made, rather than to import them from abroad. And the biggest, most high-profile examples, even before COVID-19, of an impact of that have to do with pharmaceuticals. So there were a lot of, for example, HIV AIDS patients and cancer patients who were on long-term regimes of medication to deal with their HIV infection or their cancer that were imported drugs. And when the import substitution policies went into effect and those people couldn't get at all or couldn't afford the imported drugs anymore, they were forced to switch to Russian-produced varieties, and there were many stories of the Russian-produced versions just not being quite the same. The Russian generics just didn't have the same safety. They didn't have the same efficacy. And so patients were already beginning to suffer from these import substitution policies, then layer sanctions on top of that, then layer a very difficult 
global trade environment because of the pandemic on top of that. And clearly we're seeing shortages of medicines and an inability to acquire a lot of what you need in the medical equipment industry. Do you have any prediction of where we are going with this, how serious it is, how big a challenge it is for President Putin? It's like this perfect storm of different kinds of factors all coming together at once, isn't it? And it's interesting to compare politically what's happened with Putin's opinion ratings versus opinion ratings for other leaders in countries that have been hit hard by the pandemic. Most other leaders, especially across Europe, are getting kind of a rally around the flag public opinion bounce out of the pandemic. You're seeing it with Macron in France Certainly seeing it with, for example, Andrew Cuomo in New York, not a surprise. In times of crisis, people tend to rally around their leaders. Putin's not seeing a bump like that in Russia. And his whole demeanor throughout this crisis has been, for him, oddly kind of passive. He, and I guess this is fairly easily explained by a desire to want to slough off responsibility to the regional leaders in Russia so that as things go sour, he's got somewhere to cast the blame. But you do see a lot of the regional leaders in Russia really grabbing this by the reins and public opinion ratings and that rally around the flag effect happening to the benefit of some of the regional leaders in Russia, most visibly Mayor Sobyanin in Moscow. But one other thing that has crossed my mind looking at the way Russia's handled this that goes back to Putin and the whole Russian political system and the challenges that are somewhat unique to Putin's own power vertical and the way that he's crafted this Putin-centered brand of authoritarianism in Russia brings us back to that whole conversation about the numbers for coronavirus and about the shortages of personal protective equipment and just the way people are responding. It's an environment of fear. One of the reasons that we don't have good data on the infection numbers in Russia is because I think there are many people at the health facility level, at the local health department levels, at the local political authority levels, they don't know what answer they're supposed to give to the question, how bad is the situation in your hospital or in your city or in your region? They're so used to answering questions based on what they think the boss wants to hear rather than what the truth is. And so now they don't know what to say. They don't know whether to tell the truth because they desperately need resources and want to have resources allocated to them based on the severity of the crisis that they're seeing in their specific location. Or if they think, as is usually the case, that the boss just wants to hear good news. And so they misrepresent up the chain the severity of the situation that they're facing. Coronavirus is a crisis, no doubt. But post-Soviet Russia has survived several political and economic crises, hasn't it? Is this somehow different? I asked Oksana Antonienko, London Director of Control Risks, a political and security risk consultancy. 
in Russia in particular, the economic consequences this time around are really falling much more on the shoulders of individual citizens and the small, medium enterprises, the entrepreneurs and the gray economy, rather than on the large companies or the banks like it was in 2008-2009 crisis. And many people are really struggling to go through that period. And of course, looking ahead, we are expecting much higher levels of unemployment. And with people having very low savings rates, it's likely that the impact on real incomes and on population in general economically is going to be very severe. And connected to that, of course, the politics are following very closely to economics in Russia as always. And we see now increasingly the support for approval rating for President Putin, which initially have increased after the start of the pandemic, is now going down. And if you monitor Russian social media, there's more and more concerns that people are expressing about how the government is handling the situation. So clearly, the political impacts of that economic challenges are going to be felt for some time. Russia is in the midst of this geopolitical storm, which is going to follow the pandemic. We are already seeing the relationship between the United States and China deteriorating, and it is very unclear what the role of Russia will be in that. So all around, I would say there are more risks now than really at any time, I would say, that President Putin has faced in his presidency, probably starting from the time that he came to the Kremlin in 2000. The COVID-19 crisis forced President Putin to postpone the hugely symbolic May 9th parade on Red Square, celebrating the 75th anniversary of the World War II victory over Nazi Germany. It also forced him to postpone a national referendum on constitutional amendments that would allow him to remain in power until 2036. Economically and politically, says Oksana Antonyenko, uncertainty and anxiety are growing. Russia's capacity to quickly overcome this crisis and to go back into recovery and growth are going to be particularly problematic. And that is a result of the kind of structural features of the Russian economy. On one hand, you mentioned that oil prices have dropped quite dramatically and are likely to remain well below $45, which Russia needs to kind of balance its budget. So it is already allocated 2 trillion rubles, which is probably twice as much as it's so far allocated for economic assistance to the population, just to fill in the gaps in the budget from the revenues that it is not receiving from declining oil prices. So that is going to be constrained on what Russia will be able to do to manage its economic challenges. And secondly, Russian economy is now so dominated by the state that, of course, the most important measures that Russia is now going to be taking again is 2008 and 2009 crisis is bailing out the large state enterprises that, of course, are being already very severely affected by the crisis. And it is not clear how much money will be left to actually pay individual entrepreneurs or small and medium-sized enterprises that are suffering greatly from this crisis. And so this image of an omni-powerful leader who is able to solve all the problems is very quickly disappearing. So I think politically for him, it will be a very tricky time. And it is possible that after the crisis, we will see much weaker 
politically a weaker center, weaker kind of President Putin and his approval ratings. And at the same time, a number of other leaders emerging with their own independent political gravitas and capacity to raise public support. And some of those leaders will be playing a very important role as 2024 approaches then, potentially still a year when Russia will be experiencing economic crisis and will not be able to recover economically from the current shock. And with these tensions between China and the United States, can Russia exploit that? What can Moscow do? I think Russia is in a weak position to be able to forge that swing power strategy. And in fact, it is now more and more being drawn into that rivalry on the side of China. And I think this relationship clearly is going to be one of much greater Russia's dependency on China. I'm going to ask you to make a prediction, which, of course, is always very dangerous with Russia. But President Putin did have to postpone that referendum on constitutional changes that would allow him basically to stay in power until he's in his 80s. So what is your prediction? How does this work out? Does he continue with that approach of wanting the public to give him permission to do that? Or does he change tactics I think it's probably too late for him to change tactics. I think that they will still run with the referendum. I mean, the timing is not clear at the moment. I think they were talking about maybe June or July, potentially in the autumn. But clearly, for the time being, the sooner they have that referendum, perhaps the more likely it is that they will get more support because the more problematic and the challenging times for the crisis probably are going to arrive in three to six months when we are likely to see much greater unemployment and problems that people are going to experience. And that could have an impact on how people are going to vote. Oksana Antanyanko, thank you so much. It was a fascinating view at a very difficult situation. Just a few months ago, President Putin seemed to have the wind at his back. Strong oil prices, a referendum scheduled that would ensure he could remain in power for another two terms, and the prospect of welcoming other world leaders to Moscow for a high-profile May 9th celebration. The coronavirus has changed all that. Now, for Vladimir Putin, the question is, could this virus lead to even more changes in Russia? Kenan X is a product of the Kenan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. It's the Wilson Center's oldest program, founded in 1974 by George F. Kennan, American statesman, James Billington, historian and former librarian of Congress, and historian S. Frederick Starr. Inspired by them, the Kennan Institute's mission is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the wider region. Thanks for listening.